From the CPRI Knowledge Hub and CPRIHub.org, this is Research Minutes, a deep dive into new and important research in the realm of education. This week, we explore one of the hottest topics in higher education, undergraduate admissions, on the heels of a widely publicized bribery scandal involving celebrities, business leaders, and some of the nation's elite universities. We take a closer look at the factors some colleges use in rating undergraduate applicants. For the last two or three years, if you think about it, what the two major lawsuits against Harvard and Chapel Hill. Some students at Stanford and other selective institutions started using their rights under FERPA to request access to their entire admissions file. You had this latest scandal, just growing attention being drawn to how it is, especially more selective institutions make their admission decisions. We welcome Don Hostler, senior scholar with the Center for Enrollment Research, Policy and Practice at USC, and lead author of a new study examining how some universities use non-academic factors, such as leadership ability and family context, to make admissions decisions. When we say we're looking for someone who is creative, what measures might we have? When we say we're looking for students who are committed to social justice, what measures are we going to look for? These are the things we say we're valuing in the admissions process. What evidence do we have that that's actually who we ended up with? Hostler joined CPRI Knowledge Hub Managing Editor Keith Humiller to discuss his findings, some important takeaways, and the ongoing reverberations of the college admissions scandal. I really think these inequalities that the scandal suggests are really broader than most people realize. That's right now on Research Minutes. Hi, I'm Keith Umeller, Managing Editor of the CPRI Knowledge Hub, and today I'm happy to be joined by Don Hostler, Senior Scholar with the Center for Enrollment Research, Policy, and Practice at the University of Southern California's Rossier Graduate School of Education and retired distinguished provost and Sonneborn Professor Emeritus with Indiana University Bloomington. It's a pleasure to have you, Don. I'm delighted to be with you today, Keith. We're here today to discuss what has recently become one of the hottest topics in higher education, undergraduate admissions. Your new paper in the Journal of Higher Education titled A Study in the Use of Non-Academic Factors in Holistic Undergraduate Admissions Reviews kind of takes on a new level of import right now, given the backdrop of the recent admission scandal involving some of the nation's elite institutions. But this issue, how we rate and admit college applicants, has concerned researchers and college officials for quite some time now. So can you provide us with a little context. What has been going on recently in undergraduate admissions and what led you to conduct this study? Well, on any given day, you can pick up the New York Times, the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, and one day you will read that no one is getting into college because the entire focus is on highly selective institutions. And the next day, you'll think that everybody's going to a community college. But I think in the last two or three years, if you think about it, one, the two major lawsuits against Harvard and Chapel Hill. Some students at Stanford and other selective institutions started using their rights under FERPA to request access to their entire admissions file and and all the notes the counselors had made in them and so forth. You had this latest scandal, just growing attention being drawn to how it is, especially more selective institutions make their admission decisions. This study really grew out of a process started by the College Board probably four years ago now. Jerry Lacido and I, along with Michael Bastido and some other highly regarded scholars in this area, were convened by the College Board really to just openly talk about what kind of research might help illuminate or might be useful to institutions around the whole area of college admissions. 
So as you note in your paper, more and more institutions now are moving toward test optional or holistic admissions approaches, which assess applicants on a variety of non-academic factors. Can you walk us through what those are? Sure. In 1981, there were 283 institutions that were test optional. There are now more than a thousand. And I think the University of Chicago is really the first elite institution to go test optional. So it's really pushed things in this direction. And if you think about it, test optional and holistic review go hand in hand because critics of admission tests or even for people who are not critical but have practiced holistic review for a long time. If you're not going to use test scores and grades to make decisions about admissions, what are you going to use? It inevitably leads down a path that requires institutions to look at a wider variety of considerations. In this case, what we suggest are non-academic factors. And is there any particular reason why institutions are moving in that direction, why test optional and holistic approaches are gaining traction? Well, you know, I want to be fair because not everyone would agree with me on this. All of the most selective institutions have been using holistic review for a long time, even though they were not test optional. A couple of decades ago, some small private institutions started to go test optional. And one of the arguments that has been advanced is they can diversify student bodies by going test optional you may get a more diverse student body because, as we know, folks of color, folks with lower incomes, folks who come from families where English may not be the first language, generally don't do as well on standardized tests. Uh, And standardized tests really only contribute a small amount to our understanding of or predicting how well students might do. I think the evidence is more mixed on the extent to which test optional results in greater diversity. I, I don't think that's been proven conclusively yet. So you and your team, including Emily Chung, Jaihee Kwan, Jerry Lucido, Nicholas Bowman, and Michael Bastido, essentially set out to do an exploratory study of non-academic factors at a number of selective and a smaller number of less selective institutions. This was in some ways really a three-tiered study. One, we started out with a comprehensive meta-analysis of all the research that's out there on what we are calling non-academic factors. Second were the interviews. Third, as luck would have it, Nicholas Bowman and, and Michael Bastido, just a couple of years earlier, had surveyed 300 admissions professionals who worked at selective institutions. And the survey included an invitation or request that they list the non-academic factors that they use. Michael and Nick shared their data with us, and we went back and did an analysis of their responses. So what we were looking for was kind of a fairly robust set of indicators on what institutions use. And actually, I think with the addition of the Bowman and Bastido data, I think that part of the study is actually, I would argue, generalizable. What is not generalizable is we only talked in detail to 10 institutions. We oversampled more selective institutions because we assumed they were more likely to use a more complex set of factors. But even so, I think with the number of schools, we can't claim with certainty this is what selective institutions do. And certainly with the less selective institutions, from which there were only two or three, we can't begin to generalize, but rather simply to say, these are the kinds of things appear to be used right now. Gotcha. So keeping in mind that this is an exploratory study and most likely not nationally representative, let's jump into your findings. What did you learn about the colleges that you did study? 
So we found out that uh, selective institutions, in terms of the non-academic factors we use, and not just the responses from 19 people from 10 institutions, it's also uh, the responses of around 250 admissions professionals that worked at selective institutions. The most frequently used non-academic factors fall into the performance area and the attitudinal area. Performance ranging from demonstrating that the student has expertise in a specific body of knowledge to demonstrating through performance that they have leadership skills, that they've managed organizations, that for perhaps a low-income student, they played a major role in taking care of a younger children while a single mother was working, but they focused on performance factors. The next most frequently kind of non-academic factor that was used are attitudinal factors, sense of self-efficacy, strong self-concept, demonstrate that you tend not gauge in attributing any failures or problems to others, that you kind of own some of your own problems or successes. So those are the most frequently used non-academic factors across a wide number of institutions. The next finding is clearly more exploratory. We tried to find out from these 10 institutions, okay, you tell us what you use, and then we're going to ask you to go back and identify what's most important. So first, they say that academic factors, grades and test scores and rigor of curriculum. A few highly selective schools said, well, those factors really aren't more that important. But they did acknowledge, well, yes, that's because almost everybody who applies to us is very close to being admissible. So we don't really have to focus on those. The next most frequently used factor overall, actually, was not academic indicators. It was contextual. All of the publics and all of the less selective privates and a couple of those selective institutions did look at contextual factors. Contextual factors being the quality of the high school the student attended and indicators that the student may have come from a low-income family, may have attended a school with fewer resources, a student may have come from a household where English was not the first language spoken at home, that those textual factors were very widely used, especially for public institutions. And we speculate that this is because they have fewer financial resources to use in the review process. And so contextual factors are easier to statistically analyze and identify those students. And then at these public institutions, then after academic indicators and contextual, non-academic factors were also used. For less selective schools, and again, the number is really small, so this is very exploratory, but our results would suggest is they do not use non-academic factors for all of their applicants. They use it for only some of them, and those students typically come from the lower test scores, lower grade, but the institutions are looking for factors that despite the fact that they have performed well academically, that there are reasons to believe this student can be successful. The other finding that surprised us was that this is really more important for the highly selective institutions, that most of them, all but one, were not trying to go back and say, okay, these are the non-academic factors we said we value. Do we have evidence that they made a difference? Typically, the only kind of research that schools are doing is persistence, graduation, and GPA. 
which I think are pretty weak kind of indicators for more selective institutions. Of course, most of them are going to earn good grades, are going to persist and graduate. So what evidence do they have that those special qualities that they're looking for in their applicants actually play out in creating the kind of campus environment, campus culture that they indicate they're looking for? That's really interesting. And just one point of clarification, obviously the performance factors, the things like leadership positions, club membership will show up on an applicant's actual application or transcript. The other factors, those are things that would show up, I guess, in a personal essay or an interview. Yes. Personal essay interview, perhaps in a recommendation letter. But yes, I think we raise an important question that we really can't answer. I'll use this example. Years and years ago, a good friend of mine was at Carleton. And Carleton College was becoming too concerned that the only place students appeared to spend their weekends was in the library. And they thought that was not the kind of well-rounded experience. So they started in their holistic review to look for indicators of student activities. And this may seem like an imprecise measure, but in fact, over time, there were fewer people in seats in the library at Carleton over the weekends. But it's, it's those kinds of more subtle measures to what extent When we say we're looking for someone who is creative, what measures might we have? When we say we're looking for students who are committed to social justice, what measures are we going to look for? We raise the possibility that selective institutions are perhaps not putting their own non-academic factors up on the rack to ask the question. So these are the things we say we're valuing in the admissions process. What evidence do we have that that's actually who we ended up with? So just to clarify, basically one of the elite institutions that you spoke to out of all of them really sort of did that kind of self-analysis, whereas the rest sort of weren't looking that deeply into whether those factors. They were looking at was persistence, GPA, and graduation rates. Acknowledging the fact that this is a limited study of only 10 or so colleges and it's not really nationally representative, are there takeaways here? What did you learn about today's college admissions climate, particularly in light of this recent admission scandal and what seems like a a very longstanding push for greater diversity and more equitable admissions practices here in the U.S.? Well, I think Jerry, Emily, and I, and we're all associated with the Center on Enrollment Research Policy and Practice, believe that the scandal is really just the tipping point, maybe the breaking point, the point of inflection, where if you consider all of the other factors I mentioned that have been pressing on admissions, that there is going to be a push for greater transparency and perhaps a push for so. Where's the beef? How can you prove, in fact, your selection criteria achieve the objectives? The problem with that for selective institutions, selective highly selective institutions are in a really tough spot. People want more transparency, but the more transparent they become, the easier it becomes for a larger group of students to provide exactly the kind of portfolio they say they use in the admissions decision. It's a very difficult issue. And yet, I think we will see more push for transparency in all of this. There are probably limits to which the admissions office will want to provide data or more insight in what they're doing for the very reason I just described. So we're still trying to think through how do we, knowing these tensions, get institutions through surveys or interviews to share further insight into what's going on. That's where we are right now. 
You had said earlier that the use of non-academic factors is growing a little bit. Do you ever envision a point where colleges start to get away from the importance of academic factors of performance on standardized tests and things like that? Or do you see that sort of reigning supreme, especially for elite institutions? What I'm going to say to Keith, some very thoughtful people strongly disagree with me on this. And you're going to get a little uh, longer-winded response perhaps than you want. I am not a believer in the amount of emphasis some institutions give to tests. On the other hand, I see them as an important part of our system because if we take tests away, we will have even less transparency for students because I'm not a gambler, but I bet my retirement that every elite institution in the country would have their own secret list of high schools and they would weight the grade performance at each one of those high schools to help determine admissibility. For all the problems tests create, Someone who worked for College Board actually about 30, 40 years ago wrote, one of the important things test scores do is tell students how many students like them are enrolled at this institution. And one of the other problems with test optional is, guess what? Students who do well on tests are more likely to submit test scores than the students who don't do as well. It's a really complex knot around all of those issues. So this expansion of non-academic factors, is there any indication that this will increase access? Or as you said, most of these applicants who are being judged on their non-academic factors are already submitting high test scores to these elite universities in the first place? That is a great question. I have to think about whether or not we could somehow take your question as a step in research. The problem probably that will make your question kind of an intractable issue to study is every institution looks for somewhat different things. So there's no way to kind of, so to speak, standardize if a student demonstrates, we're looking across multiple institutions, and if students demonstrate these factors, they are more likely to be successful. That's the problem. I mean, I'm, Jerry and Emily and I are currently working on an essay where we're trying to kind of unpack all of this, because actually, to some extent, some of the things like the admission scandal, especially the admission scandal, and, and people are suggesting that it is own highly selective institutions we need to fix. I think Jerry, Emily, and I think that it's a bigger problem than that. Those kind of side doors in ripple across our entire system. The low and moderate income student, first generation student, isn't going to know that any of those doors exist. And that student might be just as good as uh, the student who's been admitted because of pressure by a donor. Those low-income students are never going to get in. And what's even more potentially pernicious is a lot of less selective privates engage in tuition discounting, which means they're charging more than they have to in order to turn around and give that money back in the form of financial aid. Most schools who do tuition discounting gifts use some of that money to recruit high-ability students higher. I should say, which means potentially, I think it's be an interesting metric for institutions to have to calculate how much of that tuition discounting money is going to higher ability, no need students, which means low and moderate income students are borrowing to help subsidize that merit aid. So I, I really think these inequalities that the scandal suggests are really broader than most people realize. That's a really great point. 
Well, it's a fascinating study, Don, and we encourage all of our listeners to check out the full article, A Study of the Use of Non-Academic Factors in Holistic Undergraduate Admissions Reviews in the Journal of Higher Education. Don Hostler, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. And Keith, you ask good questions. Give me some ideas for further consideration. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's Research Minutes, presented by the CPRI Knowledge Hub. For more episodes or to subscribe to this series, visit us at ciprehub.org. That's C-P-R-E-Hub.org. To share thoughts on today's episode or to suggest future topics, you can follow us on Twitter at CPreHub.